Alright, this morning is Sunday, November 13th. It is 2005. And it uh, doesn't feel much like November out there, does it? <laughs> 90 degree November. This morning's message is called Dangerous. If you want to add a little longer title, title it will be Dangerous to the Enemy. I was speaking with Diana in this church who's away right now with her baby grandson. And by the way, don't you notice that we're missing a few people this morning? You don't just notice it because there's a chair empty. You can feel that they're not here during worship because we are used to them being a part of us. That's how the body of Christ is supposed to be. Diana's missed. David is missed this morning. When you're not here, you're missed. So do everything you can to be here for the sake of the person on your left and right. But I was speaking with Diana. She said, you know, ever since I got baptized, this has been hard. I said, you're right, sweetheart. You have stepped out, been declared a soldier of Christ, and have been marked by the enemy. You're now dangerous to him, so he's opposing you. So that's where our message comes from to that. Turn with me to Acts 19. We're going to talk about dangerous to the enemy. Is that okay? Yeah. Hallelujah. What time is it? Five till. I know my preaching runs too long when it won't fit on one CD. <laughs> you know? In Acts 19... I'm going to read a little more than I probably should, but I just want to kind of set a tempo here for you. We've got Paul in Ephesus. I love Paul. Y'all know what his name means? Small. He doesn't seem very small, though, does he? Interesting. While Apollos was at Corinth, this is Acts 19.1, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That's a strange first question, isn't it? Not really. Paul wanted to know everywhere. Have you been sealed? Have you been baptized in the Holy Ghost? They said, uh, they answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. I'm encouraged for a couple reasons. One is, I remember what it was like to not know there was anything more than repent and believe on Jesus. Paul came and explained the rest of the story there. Jesus will take his spirit, put it in you, and empower you. And one of the evidences of that, not the only evidence, but one is speaking in other tongues. But you notice Paul's only teaching 12 people here. This guy wrote the New Testament, and at this point, he's only teaching 12. Jesus started with 12, and one of them turned out to be a devil. Don't despise the day of our small beginnings. This is not about a man's might or his strength. It's about what the Spirit of God will do in you. Gideon had 30,000 people with him, and God kept whittling them down until he had 300. God could care less about the number of people. He cares about the quality of people. I have to adjust my focus on that all of the time. The meetings that I did in 1993 when I knew nothing about Jesus were bigger than these meetings. But I tell you what, Jesus is being formed in you in a way that I didn't have the ability to teach back then. That means we're making progress. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe in publicly maligned the way. The way. Isn't that interesting? They considered themselves Jews who were followers of the way. 
The way is halakha, the right way to walk with God. Paul calls himself a follower of the way, a Jew who followed Jesus, who showed the right way to walk with God. Isn't that interesting? So Paul left with them. He took disciples with him and had discussions daily in a lecture hall of Tyrannius. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the providence of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Before we get any further, I want you to get this. Paul enters Ephesus, right? First thing he does is find some disciples, make sure they get filled with the Holy Ghost. Then he takes those group of disciples, rents a rented hall, not a church building, a rented hall, named after Tyrannius, that, that can't be a good thing, and meets daily. And starting with 12, meeting daily in a lecture hall, it says that everybody in the providence of Asia heard the word of the Lord. I would say that's a pretty good thing. Paul must have been a pretty persistent fellow. They were obstinate. Some people were obstinate. That's why he went to the rented hall. Isn't that interesting? Paul had an attitude that made him dangerous to the enemy. And watch this. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. I want you to get this. Get this down in your spirit for a second. Jesus is the one that's powerful. It's not Paul. Paul's name means small. But Paul was so close to Jesus and he was one with Jesus that even the fragrance of Paul on a handkerchief, when a demon came into contact with him, he said, oh, no, I don't want any part of that guy. No, no, it, it, let's just leave him and go find an easier target. Paul had a reputation for never giving up. If he met a sorcerer who opposed him, Paul confronted it until he won. If a demonic girl is following him, saying the right things with the wrong motive, Paul confronted it until he won so that somebody could take a handkerchief that Paul had touched into the presence of a demon and he'd go, uh-uh, this person knows Paul and Paul knows Jesus. Eventually, I'll have to leave. So I'm going to get out now before there's a fight. The scent of Paul scared them off. Paul had a reputation for being dangerous to the enemy. Now, some people saw this and they thought, oh, you know, this is kind of cool what Paul does. It must be because of the words he uses. You know, there are people that perform exorcisms in this world. Some are real exorcisms, and some are elaborate dances with the enemy. Both are on the same team, and they juggle with each other for the appearance of power. And I think you know which church I'm talking about there. Okay? That have to do with rote formulas and no power. The right words, but no power in it. Well, you can decide what this one is later, but some Jews driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Now, I'm not rooting for the demon here. Don't get me wrong. But did you hear what that demon said? Jesus, I know. James says that the demons know there is one God and tremble at the mentioning of His name. And he said, I've heard about Paul. Now, I rejoice that God's written my name in the heavenlies. I'm not rejoicing that demons are submitting to me. 
But I want to tell you something. It does put a smile on my face that they knew the man's name. They had heard about him. Why had they heard about Paul? Because everywhere Paul went, he didn't put up with their intimidation. He could not be backed down by them. If he encountered demonic, satanic oppression, he just worked through it until he won to the point where he could touch a handkerchief and somebody goes, that smells like Paul. We better get out now because he's coming. And they got out of the way. You can develop a reputation, which is your name, by the way, a reputation, that says, I will not quit. I will push until I win. This is the attitude that I preached about last week. One breaks it open and the other leads the way. Do you remember when they tried to discourage Jesus? He said, you go tell that fox. I will push on today, tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. This is an attitude that people in the kingdom adopt and carry. Think about Abraham. In fact, we'll read about Abraham. Turn with me to Genesis 12. Most of you can quote this Scripture, but I wonder whether you ever thought about it like this. Genesis 12, in my Bible it's on page 12. It makes it convenient. One, the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Can you imagine that was said to you today? Can you imagine? You know, Matthew, I want you to get up, leave the United States, leave your family, leave everything that's around you, leave your job, all your security, and go to the place I'm going to show you. How would you even prepare for that? You ain't got a plane ticket. You don't know where you're going. You can't go get on a bus. You don't know what direction to head. You just know you're going. Saints, sometimes the kingdom's just like that. Jesus said, we're like aliens and strangers sojourning in a foreign land. Right now, we're pursuing a goal that is heavenward. That's our calling. We're supposed to forget the trash that is behind us, pressing on towards what's ahead. I didn't know that I was going to be in ministry where or when, but I told people, I am called to ministry, my friend, because I knew that it would happen. I didn't have to know how it would happen. But on this topic of name, get this, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Most of the time in Christianity, we have the idea that something is wrong if your name is great. This is because we've seen abuses. We've seen people put their names in the big bright lights till they outshined Jesus, and God brought it down. And He does that. He's not going to let somebody who loves Him Get into error that outshines Him. He will stomp on you until you are lowly, humble, and can be used again. But what did He tell Abraham? I will make your name great. Your name great. Paul had a great name. He had the kind of name that when the demonic realm heard Paul was in the area, they got nervous. They knew they were fixing to give up their kingdom. What did Paul go around and preach? said, said that he preached the kingdom of God. That's what it said he preached. Jesus said, go out and preach the kingdom of God. I want you to understand what this means. Kingdoms are not defined by physical boundaries. They're defined by the dominion of a king. When Paul went out and preached the kingdom, the devil had to give way because people began to recognize King Jesus as having dominion in their life. This pushed the demonic power out of the way. The devil has no power over you that you do not let him 
have. You need to understand that. There are no exceptions. I don't care what your hormones are doing. I don't care what your husband did, how many babies we just had, or the fact that the entire country is in economic collapse. makes no difference. The devil does not have any power over you that you do not let him have. He said, but it's harder for me. I'm struggling because of... I understand. All kind of things in your body can make life harder. But you do not have to give in to it for a moment. Paul had an attitude that said, I will not give up. That's the attitude to being a Christian. It's an amazing thing. If you teach Christians that you are subject to something, you see it in their lives. I've seen abuses in church. They teach this deliverance ministry that says Christians can be possessed by demons. And all of a sudden, you start seeing things that look like that. But if you teach Christians this cannot be, the Holy Ghost will not share His house with something that is wicked, you do not see it. Isn't that amazing? If you believe that something has mastery over you and you submit yourself to it to be mastered by it, then it has mastery. Get this right in your head, saints. You do not have to sin. You do not have to be downcast. You do not have to give in to the devil for a moment. You've been empowered with everything that it takes to be happy at work, to be happy at home, to be happy everywhere you go. It's our job to learn to tap into it. Abraham was given a great name, but how did he get the great name? By honoring the great name. Over and over and over in the Bible, in the name of the Lord, in the name of the Lord, Lord, we love Your name, we worship Your name, because a name was a reputation. Abraham's reputation became great for reverencing the Lord. If our names become great, it needs to be for reverencing the Lord and nothing else. Let's look at a bad example. You can turn from here to Genesis... I'm sorry, yeah, 10, 11... Genesis 11. You can go back one page. We'll go to this one first. This is the Tower of Babel. I want to read you something in this. Genesis 11, verse 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found the plain of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. There's a huge problem with this. God had said in Genesis 9, Go out, multiply, scatter, get all over the earth. They went out and settled in one place. They tried to unify. And they unified with one thought in mind. Let's make a great name for ourselves. In all of my preaching today about you having a great name, a great reputation, you need to get this right. It's not a reputation of your making. It's not a name that you caused to be great. Abraham did not say, Lord, my name will be great. I want it to be great. Will you give that to me? God said, Abraham, I will make your name great. Watch the difference here. What did they do with these bricks? It says that they made bricks. And what did they use for mortar? Tar. These are substances of the earth. They took mud with their own hands and baked them into bricks and they stacked them on each other. They took an earthy substance, tar, and put it between them as pitch to cause it to stick together. All of this speaks of earthly carnality, the making of something themselves. God can never use this. In fact, God said in Exodus 20, 
Turn with me to Exodus 20. By the way, y'all know what happened to the Tower of Babel. God crushed it. You can go there in present-day Iraq. Interesting where that is, isn't it? Present-day Iraq. And they say that it's like a nuclear bomb that melted rock. There is glass on the earth still present and an inscription that speaks about the days of a former king in a building project. I've seen pictures of it. You know in Exodus 20? In Exodus 20, verse 24, I want you to contrast this with the making of the earthen altar the Tower of Babel made. Verse 24, Make an altar of earth for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and your sheep and goats and cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come and bless you. Get this straight. You want your name to be blessed? You honor the name of God. He will give you the reputation you need. This is what Ephesians calls a breastplate of righteousness. It's not a name you made for yourself. It's not the work of your own hands. It's the work of you honoring the Lord and Him being a blessing through you and to you. Verse 25, If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. And do not go up to my altar on steps, lest your nakedness be exposed on it. What on earth am I talking about? Tower of Babel versus the altar of God. The Tower of Babel was the work of men's hands. Mud from the earth, shaped into bricks. Tar from the earth, put on these. Worked, put together so we could stand back and say, look what we did. A great name for ourselves. Kind of like when they made a Titanic and said, oh, look what we've done. Look at the accomplishment of man's. I tell you, this is unthinkable. Boy, that almost tempted God, didn't it? This Tower of Babel was the same way. Conversely, though, God says, if you want to make an altar for me, we need something that your flesh is not exposed on. In fact, you go out and find the rocks that I have shaped by my own doing. You stack those together. Don't you make bricks out of your own hands? Don't you use these stones and a tool on them? Find what I have shaped and piece it together. When we built this church, God told me that He would draw Himself the precious metals from the earth, and He would form the church. There are other churches that are out there that are like a machine, a brick factory, trying to stack one life on another to build the church. And what they have is something God cannot bless. You are uniquely shaped. Debbie is different from Cassidy, and Cassidy is different from Darnell, and it's okay. It's good. I don't want you to be cookie cutters, because God doesn't want that. Your unique shapes all fit together to build a collage that God can be glorified on, not the flesh of man. What is the strength of a brick structure? The strength of it is the bricks, right? If you have uniform bricks on the other side of this wall, neatly stacked on each other, the symmetry of those bricks, they all form a tight structure. And the bricks are what is honored, the strength of it. If we take oddly shaped stones and we put them together to build a wall... What is the strength of that structure? The adhesive. The adhesive. What holds us together? The adhesive. Jesus. He's the one that's honored in our structure. It's not the strength of the evenly uniform straight shaped bricks. God called you to be an uncut stone. Mandy's supposed to be unique. She's supposed to be. Judah's supposed to be unique. God made you different than everybody else because He likes you that way. And in you... He can create a great name. You just honor His name. We won't do it like the Tower of Babel. We won't go out to do it ourselves. Instead, we will let God work through us. You don't have to conform to my image. 
You conform to Jesus' image. And you know what? He was multicultural. In every way, He embraced all kind of people. Turn with me to Proverbs 22. I want to talk to you about this great name. Y'all awake with me today? We doing all right? This is a subject that interests you a little bit? You need this. All right, I need this. Now, I don't know whether it's something that pastors should or shouldn't do, but I'm an uncut stone, so if I don't look like another pastor, that's okay. I'm going to quote from a movie here for you. <laughs> and it's not a PG movie. You might not even want your kids to watch it. I'm winking at my son because he's seen it. In the movie Gladiator, you remember, after Maximus had been in the circus Maximus, <laughs> and the people had seen what he had done, they had watched his lifestyle, later he was concerned that the wicked uh, emperor was going to poison him. And you remember what the big Nubian said to him? said, Maximus, your name is great. He'll have to kill your name before he kills you. You can build a reputation in the kingdom that leaves a legacy behind it. We are still talking about the work of Charles Finney. We are still talking about the work of John Wesley. We are still talking about Paul's work because they built in their lives a reverence for God that he built in them a reputation that is still admirable today. The devil would have to kill your reputation before he could hurt you. This is what the Bible calls a breastplate of righteousness. You know how this works? Somebody says, I saw Steve, and he was in a bar, and he was drunk, and he was with somebody else. Somebody, not his wife. And you know what happens? Mandy and Gabe look, and they laugh at the person and say, You liar. I know Steve. Steve wouldn't do those things. Go back. Get out of here. Get out of here, you liar. Shame on you. Shame on you for speaking against a man of God. That's a breastplate of righteousness. Insults. Gossip. All of that just bounces right off. Because... It couldn't be true. That's building a great name. Y'all in Proverbs 22? Yeah. Every once in a while I preach and I forget what we're talking about as far as what Scripture we're going to. Proverbs 22. A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. A good name. Now, I don't want a good name so that people say, Oh, wow, Eric is good. Eric is great. I want people to go, Eric is somebody who loves the Lord. I want the enemies to know if they take me on, I stand close enough with Jesus that they will lose. I want them to know that. I want to set the example and the reputation that says, you leave my sheep alone. You leave me alone. Because every time we lock horns, I will not give up until you are defeated because I understand who I am in Christ. You know, when Christians don't know how to do spiritual warfare, it's because they don't know who they are in Christ. If you understood that you were seated at the right hand of God in Jesus, how could you be downcast? If you understood that you have all of the power in the universe at your availability, but only used at God's discretion, how could you be down? Paul never encountered a situation where he was ill-equipped because God had made him competent. Now, you said, but I haven't seen the miracles that Paul's seen. You had not been in the situations he's been in. You can't pray for the dead to be raised if there are no dead people in here. It makes no sense. I tell you what, somebody volunteer to die and we'll raise you. <laughs> I'm joking, of course. A good name is something that's desired, and I want that. 
In Revelation 3, we get a promise. Turn with me to Revelation 3. Revelation 3 speaks about an overcomer. You'll hear, no matter whether I'm teaching on Jewish roots or eschatology or daily living or whatever we're teaching on, you will hear in me an attitude that has been there since the day I was born again. I am not the smartest guy. You go back and look for my test scores and you may not be impressed. If I got anything from a GPA standpoint, it was just because I outworked somebody. It was not because I was more gifted. On the field of athletics, I was certainly not the most talented person. Anything that I got, I got from sheer determination or working harder than someone else. So when I came into the kingdom, I said, Lord, there may not be a lot here you can work with, but you can count on me to not quit on you. And I have found out He can use that. If you will just be stubborn for God, if you will refuse to give up in a situation, He can use that because He has all the talent you could ever need. He has everything that you could ever need. You just have to stay wholly committed to Him. Revelation 3, starting in, uh, I guess, verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Saints, too long we've heard this greasy grace message that did not teach you had to hold on to anything. It did not teach that you had to contend for the faith or that you had to fight. Jesus' own word to you is hold on to what He's given you. I was asked a question here this last Tuesday in a Bible study. Is it possible for someone to fall out of the faith? That's not a question that should even have to be asked. If you were not taught incorrectly and you read the Word, you would know because the Word shows it over and over and over. Now, does that mean that I'm striving to do that? Absolutely not. But you need to know that you can lose the faith that saved you. Why do you need to know that? Am I trying to put you under condemnation or put you in a state of fear? No, you need to be aware of the enemy's schemes. You need to know that if you dwell in sin long enough, it will put to death the faith that saved you. This ought to remind you, I don't need to stay in sin. If sin's allowed to mature in my life, it will choke out my faith. That's a warning. Watch what he says. These are the words of the Amen. Uh uh-uh. I'm sorry, I'm verse 11, I'm coming. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Saints, if you will be overcomers in this church, you will be like a temple pillar. You will be something that holds up the whole foundation. The kingdom of God is not made of geographical borders. The kingdom of God is made of people who adhere to the king's principles. So his kingdom is founded upon your obedience. His kingdom is founded upon your determination, your perseverance, your desire to recognize His authority. For His kingdom to stand in Judah's life, Judah must consistently recognize Him as the king in every area of his life. Then the kingdom of God rests upon Him like it rests upon a pillar. Do you understand that? You are the temple of God in the sense that as you stand for Him... His glory rests upon you. You are a temple in that way. Think about what it means when you refuse to stand for Him, when you cower, when you cave. The temple of God's collapsing in your life. This is why you pray in the Holy Ghost. It's why you meet with other people. It edifies or builds up your spirit so that you can stand. This is very practical teaching. It's what the church is about. Watch what else he says. 
Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write him on, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Saints, if you dwell in God, His name, His reputation will go with you wherever you go. Paul's name meant small. It was not that he was great. It's that God's name dwelt on him. God's reputation. So that even if a handkerchief left his presence to go somewhere, Zeman went, wow, tangling with Paul's just like tangling with God. I don't want any part of it. Let me go find an easier target. Some of you know I sold security systems in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It is impossible to take a house and make it an impenetrable fortress. If you're an international jewel thief, you can defeat any security system. That is not the point. The point of selling security systems, having security systems in your house, is to make it a less attractive target. In Christianity, you will never get to a place where the enemy does not ever bother you, where it's just like strolling through the tulips. It does not happen. But you can make yourself a less attractive target. Every time he tempts you to be down, step on his head by advancing the kingdom in some place. Every time He tempts you to do something that is wrong, you fight back by advancing the kingdom in some area of your life. If you have a temptation to think, those people at church don't really like me, go spend more time with them. Advance the kingdom in that area of your life. When you meet resistance, fight Him back. And you know what? He will pick a different area because He will see it works against Him. If you are shy, learn to be bold in the kingdom. If you are introverted, learn to have a centrifugal Christianity in your life. Whatever it is that ails you, that makes you think of yourself as lesser or as condemning or beats you down, do the opposite for Jesus and the devil will eventually back off. Because he will see that the harder he pushes, the harder you push back and God is with you. In this way, you will run the bully out of your life and walk in what we call victory. We call walking in victory, walking in the Spirit. You can do this in any area that you set your mind to wholeheartedly do it in. I've met people that said that they needed medications, they needed this, that, and hey, there's nothing wrong with medication. I'm not saying that. But what I'm trying to get at is they were fighting for the right to stay the way they were. And as soon as they got in their head that they didn't have to be subject to anything, the most amazing thing happened. They weren't subject to that anymore. Quit fighting for the right to be lesser than you should be in Christ. Cross your arms and say, well, it's just the way that I am. God didn't call you to stay the way that you are. He called you to be like Him. Ever-increasing faith. Don't look at Jesus and say, Lord, if you can, He'll look back at you and say, if I can, all things are possible for him who believes. Don't do it. Instead, make up your mind that God will do anything in you that's for the glory of His kingdom and that your name is great as long as you're in Him. See yourselves as an overcomer. See yourselves as conquering in Christ. You are more dangerous than a GI with an M16. You're like a hand grenade that goes off. The enemy should be fearful when you enter the room. I was a young, dumb Christian who did not know any better and was thankful to have some smarter Christians with me that were sometimes influenced by me. We went and tore down 
psychic fair signs that were up all over the city we lived in because we didn't like that we saw them there. We thought, this is the devil coming into our town and it offended us. I was maybe 19, 20 years old, something like that. Went and tore them all down. I didn't know it was illegal. I didn't care. Went to the meeting where all of these people assembled. When I walked through the door, my eyes met a man's eyes. He turned and ran the other direction. Ran from a 19 or 20 year old kid who was filled with the Spirit of God. You know who he was? He was the organizer of the psychic fair. You tell me that the God in you is not greater than the Spirit of the world that's in them. I was a dumb kid. If he had just bluffed, I wouldn't have known any better. But what was in him knew what was in me and he did not want any part of it. I've been in street evangelism situations, had demonic encounters on many occasions. What is in them wants no part of what's in you as long as you know what you have. The only area that the enemy has over, over you is when you don't know. When you don't know that what's in you is great. It's like being on a cruise and having no idea the food's paid for. You're starving in the room, wishing you had money for the food, and you had no idea that your ticket included the food. In Christianity, we need to learn to exert ourselves. Something's going on that you don't like? Learn to pray. Learn to push. i got a mother-in-law that is the sweetest little librarian. I mean, I must be like a barbarian to her. She's the antithesis of me. But when she pulls into a Walmart parking lot, the woman prays and expects a spot up front. You say, well, that's kind of silly. No, it's not. She knows that this whole earth is hers because it belongs to her daddy. And she prays and she figures that some lost person doesn't deserve that spot. She can get it. And you know what? She does. It's hilarious. She gets them everywhere she goes. And always has. I mean, it's been a testimony. That's been her name, her reputation, as long as I've known her. It's been funny. Some people have anointings to heal backs. And we say, oh, that's an anointing. God just did that. No, they learned how to exert their kingdom authority in that area. And they got used to it. You're You're not waiting for something else from on high to come upon you. It's already in you. You have to fan it into flame. You have to let the Spirit well up in you. You can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens you. You can. You're not waiting for some new empowerment, some new anointing. Waiting, waiting, waiting. Get out and do it and it will come. I promise. I promise that. It's been true everywhere in my life and if God can do it with this idiot, He can certainly do it with you. Certainly He can do it with you. Revelation speaks of an overcomer who gets the name of God stamped on him. You know, if a professional athlete or a famous movie star or somebody puts their name on something, it's an endorsement. They get paid for these endorsements. But in theory, in theory, this is supposed to be their stamp of approval. Live a life that God can put His name on. Live your life in His name and you know what? Your name will become great too and you will be dangerous to the enemy. Turn with me to Psalm 118. I got to get moving along or we're not going to get to the rest of this message. (laughs) Psalms 1, 18, starting in verse 26. An old man told me one time, who was lost by the way, I invited him to church and I was very surprised he came. And uh, he said, Son, it doesn't matter what you say. Just say something. I didn't know what he meant. He told me later his church that he went to, he was bored to death. 
There was never any enthusiasm. There was never any drive. And what he was trying to say is, look, if you're going to spend an hour of my time, at least give me something worthwhile. Now, I may get overly excited up here. I don't know how you guys feel about it. But the things that I'm teaching and preaching on will change your life if you learn to apply them, and I can't help but get excited about it. The reason that I jump around like an idiot and sometimes look like a cheerleader up here is because I found these things to be true in my life. I'm not preaching about something that I heard. I'm not telling you about something I read in a book somewhere, although sometimes I do teach things that I read in books. I'm telling you about what my life has experienced. And I figure if it works for me, and I'm a failure most of the time, and yet God's caused it to work, then it can work for you. There is no reason to have to sit in discontentment. There's not. You just have to learn to exert authority over it. I was one time sad. I read that the Lord had anointed us with the oil of joy. I no more felt joyful than a man on the moon. But because I read that, I stood up, believed I was anointed with the oil of joy, started dancing around the house like an idiot, and you know what happened? I was joyful. Isn't that amazing? Sometimes you need to be able to stand back and laugh at yourself. You know? I, I have laid hands on my neighbor's wall because I, the people next door I thought were unhealthy as far as an environment. At 2.30 in the morning, prayed that the Lord would wake them up, and I swear it wasn't because I was yelling, that the Lord would wake them up, make them uncomfortable where they lived because this person seemed to be a sexual predator in my eyes. I didn't like the way he looked at my wife. It seemed uh, unwholesome. Prayed. They woke up. We have authority. Not only did they wake up in a week, the guy moved out. No longer a part. You have authority that you hadn't even learned to tap into yet. This is not to make you great. It's to make Jesus great and your reputation in Jesus great so that the demonic powers will know you're somebody to be reckoned with. Stay away. Sometimes Christians get walked on because they don't know what they have. Psalm 118 is a real simple one. And it says uh, quite plainly in Psalm 118, verse 26 through 27, Blessed is He... Let me find it here. I'm in 119, 26... Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. If you go everywhere you go in the name and the authority and the reputation of God, it's a blessing to everybody around you. If you bring from God's house, which you are, by the way, you are God's house, if you bring out of you blessings for other people, then you're a blessing everywhere you go. God didn't bless Abraham just because he liked Abe. By the way, they call that Avi in Israel. It's Avraham. And they call him Avi. That's his nickname. And it's a popular nickname. God didn't bless Avi because he just thought Avi was a great God. He blessed him to be a blessing to other people. Now you tie this back in with what I said before this sermon started, before the CD. If you are walking in what God has given you and you come into this church with the idea to be a blessing to other, all of us are spurring one another on all of the time and the church grows in power and in strength just like it did in the book of Acts. Just like it did in the book of Acts. From one house to another. If this house won't meet our needs, we'll go to Brad's house. And if that one doesn't, then we'll go to David's, then Steve's, and this will spread. You say, well, do you ever want a building? Well, if that's what God wants... I don't care otherwise. I just want to see people walking in the kingdom in the way they're supposed to. Let's talk about developing this reputation that's dangerous to the enemy. In 2 Samuel 23, we see some principles that I've read to you before, but since I don't think you can quote them from memory, I figure I'll keep repeating them until we can. 
In 2 Samuel 23, the idea here being developing this name, this reputation, that the enemy knows you're somebody to be contended with and God knows that you're somebody that can be counted on. Two items you want. You want God to know He can count on you and you want the enemy to know you are somebody to be contended with. Go pick an easier target. We see a principle here. Verse 8. These are the names of David's mighty fighting men. Jasheb, Bashabeth, a Tekamite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. From this man's life, this one little line that is written about him, everybody in Christ should take note. On this subject of being dangerous to the enemy, why on earth was Jasheb dangerous to the enemy? Well, Jasheb's name means sitting in the council of God. Saints, all of you are supposed to sit in the council of God. His Spirit is in you, speaking to you, ministering to you, and empowering you. And when you sit in the council of God, no task is impossible for you. You can stand and face 800 men and go, I only got one spear, and you watch. I will kill every one of them because God is with me. I sit in His council. This developing this name that is dangerous to the enemy, being somebody that God can count on requires you to sit in the counsel of God. There's a couple ways for you to do it. One is to be in church, to learn the Word of God. But that's the smallest part. That's two days out of seven. If you really want to learn to sit in the counsel of God, you have to pray and read His Word daily. You have to feed your spirit as much, if not more, than you feed your body. Well, there's a thought. Huh. Feed your spirit more than you feed your body. And then that part of your... That doesn't mean starve your body. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying don't starve your spirit. If you do that, you learn what God is about. You start to feel His presence and His power in your life. Jesus went and made a way so that what would happen is you would have His presence with you all of the time. It's time to act like it. As one who sits in the presence of God... Even if 800 face you. The Psalms say, Psalm 91, which I told on a few weeks ago, says 1,000 can fall at this side and 10,000 at this side. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. This guy saw no task as impossible because he sat in the council of God. Keep reading. I love this next guy. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai, the Ahoite. As one of the three mighty men, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at past Demim. You know, when you know who you are in Christ, not only are you not fearful, not only are you not intimidated by the enemy, you can taunt them and laugh because you know you've got the atomic bomb with you. You've got God. They're shooting at you with BB guns and they think that they've got something. You have got the Almighty. That's how David can go out there with a slingshot and knock down a giant. Because he knew God was with him. So they taunted the Philistines gathered and passed him in for battle. Then the men of Israel retreated, but he stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. If you want to build a name that is dangerous to the enemy, a name that knows... The, the enemy knows you are one to be contended with and God knows you are somebody to be counted on, you need to learn to advance when others retreat. 
That means that when you're tired and you don't want to go do something, you go, wow, flesh wants to retreat? The Spirit must push forward. That is what that means. This is not some futuristic faraway battle. This is in your daily living. It's doing the good that you know you should do even when you don't want to do it. When everything about you says retreat, run, get out of it, go do something easier, you say, I will not and the devil cannot make me. The harder you push me, the further I will push back. So go find somebody else. And he will. He will. I have had whole years in my life where I was not subject at all to things that I struggled with before that. Because he pushed and I pushed back ten times as hard. And he pushed and I pushed back ten times as hard. So he picked a new area. We didn't fight about that. Several years went by and he tries again. He's got a little tackle box, fishing lures. And he sees what, what you bite on. And if he finds one that the fish you're biting on, he'll work in your life with that all of the time. You need to learn how to make him pick a new area because you will not give up in that one. You're always going to have opposition. It makes you stronger. Gabe and Debbie were working out. They were telling us about that. I'm excited for them. I think that's great. I've been eating out. They've been working out. When you work out, if there is no resistance, your own body weight or whatever, you don't get any stronger. When you work out, resistance has to increase for your muscle mass to increase. Same thing happens in the spirit. But you learn how to push harder than the resistance that is pushing you. That's what we call working out. Well, what do you think it means when the Bible says work out your salvation with fear and trembling? This means meet the resistance that is facing you with a greater resistance. Push and push and push. And you'll overcome. The Bible promises it. You want to read about the last guy? There were three of the mighty fighting men. Next to him was Shammah, son of Aggie. means he lived in College Station here in Texas and played football. The Hararite. Oh, I guess he didn't live in College Station in Texas. When the Philistines banded together at the place, there was a field full of lentils. Y'all don't know what lentils are. Those are beans. Sad. (laughs) I hate beans. Everybody that knows me knows that. Israel's troops fled from them. But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the battlefield. He defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. Now, I told you that Joshua's name meant sitting in the council. Eleazar, whose hand grew frozen to the sword, his name means God is my help. When you sit in the council, you won't retreat. When you understand that God is your help, you'll stick to His Word and you'll defeat the enemy even if everybody else is running. You know what Shammah is? Shammah's got three definitions for his name. Shammah means astonishment, desolation, and fame. If you're willing to lay down your life to defend a field that feeds other people, if you believe what God has called you to do is defend this field like I believe that, and you would lay down your life for it, some will be astonished by that. You'll rise as far as fame because people will go, wow, that guy's attached to that place. I don't know whether he's right or not, but he believes that. And you will cause desolation to the enemy. Because every time he comes close to try to steal the food that nourishes your people, you let him have it. I mean, you hit him and you hit him hard. The Israeli army, the IDF, has been taught If somebody kills a Jew, they are supposed to kill ten Palestinians. If somebody invades Israel and takes part of their land, they are supposed to take a larger piece of their country. Now, world pressure keeps them from doing this sometimes, but that is very much the attitude of that country. 
If we adopt that attitude in Christianity, you will succeed everywhere you go. If every time the devil tempts you in one area, you push him back ten times as hard, not only will he pick a new area, you will gain way in your Christian walk. Those three principles are important. You don't retreat, you don't give up, and you'd be willing to lay down your life for the nourishment of yourself and other people. I want to read you something out of Joshua, and I promise we're going to close here in just a few minutes. I say that like y'all are waiting for me to close. And that may not be the case. I'm just aware that as much as your spirit is willing, your buttocks begin to hurt in those chairs. In Joshua 10, we see a principle that is really important. Christians, if we can start to get the right perspective. See, sometimes it's not that you're unwilling, and it's not really that you just aren't educated in the Word. Sometimes you just don't see the battle picture in the right way. I've been telling y'all missionary stories, and most of them have to do with somebody that had a unique perspective. When I was telling you about David Livingstone, he goes into a village and some missionaries die during their effort. The perspective of the missionary society was, wow, that means we don't need to be there. The perspective of David Livingstone was, this proves the need for us to be there. In Christ, we have to adopt the right perspective when looking at our battlefield in our situation. This Scripture will help us. Joshua is fighting at Gibeon. And the sun stands still in the middle of the day to give Joshua enough time to defeat the enemy. Now, Joshua is outnumbered five to one. There are five kings facing the one army of Israel when Joshua is fighting. God stops the sun in the day to allow Joshua time to fight. Not only does he stop the sun in the middle of the day, he also throws the enemy into confusion to help Joshua. To make a long story short, Joshua wins this battle. Joshua's name, Yehoshua, is the same name as Yeshua, just pronounced a little differently. It is Jesus' name. And much can be gleaned from this connection. Jesus has already gone out in the middle of the day, outnumbered five to one, and defeated all the enemies around him. Here's the perspective part I want you to get starts in verse 16. This is the way you need to view the enemy. Verse 16 of chapter 10. Now the five kings had fled and hidden in the cave at Machedah. By the way, if you really know who you are in Christ, when the enemy puts you in his crosshairs and you push back, he will run and go hide in a cave. I want you to understand that. This is why James says, resist the devil. And what? He will flee. Now, we act like if we resist, that means he fights harder. Not so. If you resist with determination, he will flee. But if you don't know what you have, he will stand and fight with you because he thinks you'll give up. Okay? So Joshua goes and finds these guys hiding in a cave. When Joshua was told that the five kings had been found hiding in the cave at Machedah, he said, roll up large rocks to the mouth of the cave and post some men there to guard it. But don't stop. Pursue your enemies, attack them from the rear, and don't let them reach their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. To start with, Joshua sets aside these five leaders. And he says, I want you to keep them in a cave. Keep them there until I get there. I have a special purpose for them. But you guys, you go run down all the little minions, all of the people under them, and don't you stop until you've stomped them all out. The major enemy in your life is called Satan. He's the opposer. Jesus has effectively locked him up in a cave for a reason. 
Okay? Not saying he has no influence. What I'm saying is the majority of his power has been shown to be false as a battle with Jesus. Okay? He has sent us out and said, pursue the enemies, pursue them, and don't you stop. In fact, this actually happens in the millennial reign. Satan's bound for a thousand years, and we are pursuing all of the enemies, and it's happening in figure now. But watch why. Here's what happens. So Joshua and the Israelites destroyed them completely, almost to a man. But a few who were left reached their fortified cities. The whole army then returned safely to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. And no one uttered a word against the Israelites. Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. By the way, all of those cities became Israelite cities. See, when you go out to battle with King Jesus, the kingdom that is there, the kingdom of this world, will fall to you and become the kingdom of God. Jerusalem became known as David's city. When they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all of the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come up with him, Come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous, for this is what the Lord will do to all of the enemies you are going to fight. What Jesus did for you when He resurrected, when He came out of the grave, is effectively put His foot on the neck of the enemy and said, Come here, Brad. Come here, Judah. I want you to put your foot here. I will do this to every enemy that faces you. Now you go forth and advance My kingdom. This is why the disciples came back and they were leaping with joy. Even the demons submit to us, Lord. He didn't say it wasn't true. It is true. This is why Mark 16 says that you will trample on the serpent and the scorpions. You are meant to tread upon the neck of the enemy. But you have to understand that as a perspective. You need to get out of your head that the devil's kicking you around and get in your head that it's your job to kick him around. You need to get out of your head that he oppresses you and you need to oppress him. This is a shift in paradigm. And when you get it, it sounds absurd to hear somebody stand there and say, boy, the devil's really been hard on me lately. They go, well then get up off your butt! What are you doing? You're supposed to be hard on him. Make him pick somebody else because you will fight with him. Make him pick an easier target. This is how Christians walk in victory. And it's a matter of perspective. And friends, I'm not telling you I always get this right. I know my foot's on his neck and sometimes it feels like he's on top of me. It's a struggle. I'm not saying it's not. But get it right in your head and you will not accept anything less than what is right. This is important. It's how Christians walk right. You get called into new areas of ministry. Get called into new countries. You get called into new places. You feel different oppression than you've ever felt before. You deal with different thoughts Even the sounds in the area, the people all seem different. And if you're not careful, it's oppressive to you. You have to learn that you are on top and not on bottom. You have to learn to exert that authority, to walk in it if you want to succeed. This is why over and over and over, as Joshua's leading the people into the new land, he says, 
Do not be discouraged. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord thy God, He is with thee. It's why it tells them that over and over and over. And this is what needs to be told to the church. God is with you. Act like it. God is your help. Advance against those 800 men. God is with you. Don't you retreat. Freeze to the sword. Stick to the Word. God is with you. Defend that field. Defend it with your life. You will not be overcome. That's the attitude we have. And if you see a brother or sister that is dwelling out of that attitude, help them. Don't condemn them. Grab them by the arm and help them walk. I read to a Christian this week a Scripture. It's Ecclesiastes 4.12 and 13. It says, Two are better than one, for they have a better return for their work. If one falls down, the other is there to pick him up. And at night, one can keep the other one cold. I mean warm uh, from the cold. He says, In a threefold cord... It's not easily broken. In Christ, that's what we are. And those of you that are lucky enough to be married, one cord, two cords, and then Jesus is the third. And if you're bound together, you can't be broken apart. Now, why is that important? Because God gave you spouses to help you out of the doldrums. God gave you those things to help you out of the doldrums. Don't accept. Now, my wife gets mad at me, I'll be honest. I get mad at her sometimes too. That happens. Anybody says they don't fight is not telling you the truth or they've misunderstood what you mean about fighting. Disagreements, some people call fights. You know, I mean, I'm not talking about fist fighting, okay? But I don't allow in my household for Judah, Gabe, Jennifer, anybody to walk around with a frown. Now, there's a lot of ways that I don't allow it. It might be with my son that I exert authority. Says, son, put a smile on your face now. <laughs> yes, sir. You know, and he forces one. With my wife, obviously, that's not the most beneficial thing to do. I'll tickle her. I'll play with her. I'll, I'll dance around the house. I'll do whatever it takes. But I don't allow it because I know it's not what's supposed to be. You know what? All I have to do is get a little bit quiet. And she starts doing the same thing to me. Because she sees something must be wrong. Eric never shuts up and he's quiet. <laughs> you know? And in that way, we spur one another on. Those of you that don't have a spouse, it's what the church is for. Consider yourself married to Jesus and in the church, and that's your threefold cord. Devote yourself to the church in the way that you would devote yourself to a wife or a husband. That's what you're supposed to do. Your foot is on the neck of the enemy. It's been an hour now, and I have a couple other scriptures that I want to share with you, but I think you probably get the point, so I'm going to tell you. The Philistines brought the ark of God, into their sanctuary. And the idea was this giant Dagon statue stood and the ark was in its shadow. This was the enemy. Think about this from a spiritual perspective. These are the prince of the power of the air and his little minions that are there going, big demonic idol, tiny little God. God's people have failed Him. God's people haven't been obedient. God's people are ruined. That's what he's trying to show. And I have the symbol of God's presence in the temple to Dagon, overshadowing it. Dagon's overshadowing it. But when they came in the next day, it was fallen on its face. God knocked it down. So they stood him back up. You know, maybe there was an earthquake or something. Then the next day, it fell down and its head and hands were broken off. Why do you think that's in the Word? If you will put the presence of God first in your life and put it before your problems, whatever they are, God will break off the problems head and hands. It doesn't matter what the problem is. If you can get it into the presence of God, which you're supposed to carry with you everywhere, 
That's what the ark was, the carried presence of God. It will break down the problems. We're going to read one last Scripture in Luke, and I'm going to close. But if you meditate on the Scripture until Wednesday, it should be this one. Nobody in the kingdom ever thinks of themselves as a quitter. Nobody in the kingdom ever wants to say that they gave up on Jesus. But the reality is, every time you willingly dwell in sin, you've given up on Jesus. And you need to frame the discussion that way in your mind because it will keep you from doing it. Look how Jesus said this. Luke 18, verse 1. Then Jesus told His disciples a parable. I love Luke. Look what He writes here. To show them that they should always pray and not give up. The point of this parable is to learn to pray and not give up. You know, Winston Churchill was invited to this country after World War II. And he was invited to a prestigious university. They paid him a lot of money. And Winston Churchill was not a fantastic guy. I don't know how much you've read about him. But from a moral standpoint, Winston had some, some deficiencies. Uh, funny guy, though. I mean, he had a unique perspective on things. One time he was drunk at a party. And a woman looked at him and said, Sir, I perceive that you are drunk. He said, yes, madam, that is true, and I perceive that you are ugly. The difference between you and I is in the morning, I shall be sober. You shall still be ugly. He had a keen sense of ability to distinguish between light and temporary problems, drunkenness, and permanent disabilities. Now, I told you Winston was not a great guy, but he had an attitude that God could use. Because he had a determination about him, God, this man almost single-handedly saved his country and the world from Hitler's advances. But we're not teaching history and war in here. He gets to this university and he's supposed to give the commencement speech as these people are graduating. Is that what it's called? Commencement speech? Okay. And while he's there, he's been paid lots of money. He shows up late to start with. He wouldn't do well in this church because we're not allowing that. We're getting here on time. He shows up late and then he stands up to the microphone Guy's been paid money, flowed all the way from London to the United States. Everybody's waiting for him to speak, and he walks up and he says, My advice to you is never, never, never give up. They turned off the mic and turned around and walked off. That was, in his mind, all they needed to know to succeed. Jesus was not all that different. You can call this the Winston Churchill principle if you like. When you pray, never, never, never give up, and you will succeed. That's what this parable we're going to read is supposed to teach. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because of this, this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for the chosen ones who cry out to Him day and night? If an unjust judge who doesn't care about anything will do this, how much more would the just judge do it? That's the point of the parable. Will He keep putting them off? I tell you, He will see that they get justice and quickly. However, get this, however, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Jesus equates faith with persistence. 
Faith and persistence are the same thing in this regard. When you are facing a problem, whether it's depression or economics or sickness or whatever it might be, your job is to pray consistently, to fight consistently, believing that the just judge will grant you victory. This is a sign of your faith. And when Jesus returns, that's what He will be looking for. The faith that persevered. The faith, faith that overcame. And if you do that, He will put His name on you. His reputation will become your reputation. Because you stood by Him in His trials, He confers upon you His kingdom. This is what the Scripture means. Y'all stand up. Let's pray.